Wow. All right, welcome back to RUF. Glad you're here. We are going to continue our study through the book of Acts this evening. And so if you have your Bible, I hope you do, please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through chapter 2, verse 12, but I'm only going to read probably chapter 2, 1 through 12. But we're going to be looking at verses uh, throughout those, um, throughout that range, verse 9 of chapter 1 through 12 of chapter 2. If you are here tonight and you are skeptical of Christianity, then I would hate to be in your shoes. Because you see, you have a great challenge before you tonight. And the challenge is, how do you explain the explosive growth of Christianity? How do you explain that a bunch of ragtag, uneducated Jewish men started this movement, and on the first day of the movement, they actually had 3,000 converts? How do you explain that? Or how do you explain that Christianity and this movement that was started here in the opening chapters of Acts actually toppled the entire Roman Empire within three centuries? Well, the Bible's answer for that is that there was something big going on, something behind the scenes of human understanding. The Holy Spirit was at work. The agent of change, the third person of the Trinity. Now, let me be clear. This, we, we're going to talk about the coming of the Spirit. Now, does that mean that the Spirit wasn't at work in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. The, the Spirit has been involved since the very beginning of creation. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is there are a couple of times in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, where they talk about there is this prediction that the Spirit is going to come in a way that it never has before. They say, in effect, in the prophets that one day God is going to come and bring mega change in the world when He pours out His Spirit on His people. Well, that's the passage that we're looking at this evening. We're looking at this passage where God pours out His Spirit at Pentecost. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. This is a difficult passage. Um, It's confused a lot of people over the years. It seems odd and weird uh, and a little bit crazy, (laughs) if we're honest. And so, Father, you say that the Holy Spirit helps teach us. And so we need teaching this morning. We need training. We need you to help bring clarity uh, to your word. Would you help us? Would you show us um, the good news of this passage? In Jesus' name, amen. Long family car rides. Do you remember those? We remember those very well, uh, particularly our recent long family car ride over Christmas break. Each year, uh, my family, my wife and our three girls, I've got a four-year-old Kate, a two-year-old Elizabeth, and an almost one-year-old Ann Wright. Every year we make the trip to Charleston, South Carolina, which is about eight hours away. A few weeks ago, we made that trip and we all piled in our white Honda minivan And all of the girls are lined up in the middle row in their car seats. And Susie and I had high hopes. Hopes that this would be the trip where we all got along. This would be the trip where we all enjoyed life together as a family for the next eight hours on this long family car ride. We had such high hopes. We had it well planned We had all the snacks that the girls loved so that we could just hand them back to keep them happy. We had the DVD players set up on the seats. We had all their favorite DVDs ready to go. We had some of their favorite toys. We had coloring books. We had it all. And before we hit Interstate 20, someone had touched someone else's leg Someone had stolen someone else's snack. Someone was complaining about the DVD. One wanted Ariel, the other one wanted Cinderella. Someone had taken someone else's toy. And before we hit I-20, it was game on. And Susie and I are holding on for dear life, wondering how in the world we're ever going to make it seven more hours in this car with this chaos. You see, we had high hopes that this would be the day, this would be the trip when we enjoyed life together, where we all got along, but instead we got something totally different. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever been in the place where you are expecting good things, great things to happen, but instead of getting good things, you get something totally different. And you're left disappointed, frustrated, even crushed and devastated. Well, if you've been there or if you're there tonight, I've got good news for you. You're in good company. Because that's exactly where the disciples were in Acts chapter 1 and 2. How so? Well, look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. You see, the disciples knew their Bibles better than we do. Jesus orders them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, this is it. The time has finally come. Jesus has come into the world. We knew what that meant from the prophets. And now the Holy Spirit, which the prophets had testified, is getting ready to be poured out. Jesus has told us that was going to happen. And now all things were going to be made right in the world. This was it. Why did they think that? Well, the prophets. They said in the prophets, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And so now we understand, look at verse 5. When Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit in verse 5, now we understand verse 6. Look at verse 6. The question, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, in their minds, they concluded that this was the time that Jesus was going to kick butt, take names. They were going to rule right next to him on his throne. They were going to defeat the Roman Empire. And all was going to be right with the world. And Jesus had to have been thinking, I just taught for 40 days about the kingdom of God, he says in verses 2 and 3. And you can just see Jesus shaking his head, saying, oh my goodness. But look at how Jesus responds to them. After asking that question, is this the end? Is this it? See, that's what they were hoping. That was their dream. And then Jesus dashes their hopes in this one statement. And he says, guys, it's not for you to know. It's none of your business. God is the one that knows. And it's only him. What about you? What are your top three disappointments in life? What are the things that have crushed you over the years? For some of you, it could be you didn't get into the college of your choice. You know, maybe Sanford wasn't your first choice. And you got rejected from the first choice and it devastated you. Maybe for some of you, it will be grad school. You might not get into the grad school of your choice. Others of you, maybe you're disappointed because the relationship you thought was going to work out suddenly came to a screeching halt. Others of you are disappointed because you're at the end of your college career and you didn't find a spouse, and that was one of the things that you had hoped for when you came to college. Others of you, you have these dreams and hopes of a great relationship with your father or your mother. And it's so much less 
than what you want it to be. You see, we have hopes that were dashed, that are dashed, and we are left disappointed. All of us in some way, like the disciples, think one thing is going to happen and have our hopes up and our dreams uh, going in one direction, but something totally different comes our way. We have expectations of good things that never come to pass. And they often crush us, disappoint us, wound us, and leave us cynical. So here's the question tonight. How do you have hope for the future when your dreams have been dashed to pieces? That's the question. How do you have hope for the future when your dreams and hopes have been dashed to pieces? Well, the first way is you pray expectantly. Look at verse 14 with me. The disciples' hopes are shattered. They haven't turned, things haven't turned out the way that they thought they would. Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. They're not sitting on thrones, living the good life the way they thought they would be. And even worse, their leader has physically left them. Now, if that were you, what would you do? Here's what I would do. I would whine. I would start licking my wounds. I would start saying, woe is me. Why did I ever fall for this stuff? And I would get really, really cynical. But look at what the disciples do. Look at verse 14. They join together in prayer. Now we don't know much about this prayer meeting they had because there's only a few words about it, but it's in this short description, it is packed with lots of things we can take away. They prayed corporately. They didn't just pray as individuals. They prayed all together as a whole group. They prayed with others. There was a united prayer. Notice the term in one accord, meaning there was consensus. They came together in deeper unity of mind and heart and spirit. They had agreement as they prayed. It says they devoted themselves, which means consensus. It was prevailing prayer. It was persistent prayer. They were diligent as they prayed. This wasn't ten days as they're waiting for the Spirit of licking their wounds. It wasn't ten days of saying, woe is us. It was ten days of praying earnestly and fervently. You see, we have this tendency when our hopes are dashed and our dreams are shattered to give up hope in anything good. And we often get cynical really, really quickly. You know, cynicism is the spirit of our age. What does it mean to be cynical? To be cynical means that you are without hope. To be cynical means that You are doubting God's goodness. You question his goodness on your behalf. These men didn't do that. When it was most, the opportunity for them to get cynical was right before them, they didn't. Look at what they did. Look at verse 22. 
of chapter 1. They had an expectation that something was going to happen. So much so that they found a replacement for Judas. If it were me, I would have said, who cares about electing one more disciple? What good is that going to do? They expected God to work so much so that they found a replacement for Judas. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they knew God was going to do something, and so they sought him in prayer. Have your hopes been dashed? Have you given up hope? Have you put your life in neutral, so to speak, and you've just kind of said... Life sucks, and so I'm just going to kind of hang on for dear life and try to survive. What if instead of doing that, what if you devoted yourselves to prayer and prepared yourself for what God might have for you in the future? You see, when things don't go our way, we whine. And we think that God has somehow pulled out the rug from under us. And instead of getting cynical, what if we said, God, what are you doing? You are in control. You love me. You're working out your purposes. What are you doing in my life? What are you preparing me for? How do you have hope for the future? When your dreams have been dashed to pieces, well, first, you have hope by praying expectedly that God is at work. Secondly, you anticipate the future. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So we see this kind of outpouring of the Spirit is on a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. That's when this whole thing with the Holy Spirit comes down. And Pentecost is a harvest holiday. It's a harvest festival. Fifty days after Passover, and one of the questions that we need to ask is, why is God doing this big thing in history on this day? What is the significance? Well, here's the significance. And it's the fact that Pentecost was a festival of the first fruits. In other words, the first of the harvest came in on these days. And so on this day, you saw just the first fruits of the harvest. You didn't see the whole thing. You saw just the beginning. You got a sample of what was going to come later in droves. That's what they're saying, Luke is saying about the Spirit here. God chooses this day. Because he's in a sense saying, I'm going to give you a sample of what's going to be coming later in the future in spades. Think about it this way. When you buy a house, which all of you will one day, you, when you go look at a house, if you like it and are remotely interested, you will give the seller what's called earnest money. In earnest money, it's normally $1,000, and basically you give that to the seller and say, I want you to hold this house until we make our final decision so that no one else comes along and kind of buys it up right out from under you. You give them the earnest money, and it is a promise that more cash is coming. 
So it is with the Spirit. That is what the Holy Spirit is. It's a promise that more is coming in the future. You see, the Bible talks about sin, and it all started in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 with what is known as the fall of man. And since that time, everything has been subject to decay. Everything. New homes fall apart. The drains clog up. New cars, you park them in the parking garage behind Smith, and I promise you before the semester's out, there will be a ding in your door or a scratch down the side. Our bodies, everything is falling apart. Even we see it in our own bodies. We get sick, we get fatigued, we get diseased, we die, we get depressed. We see it in our relationships. Even the best relationships over time decay. Because you see, even the best relationships, the insensitivity, the misunderstanding, the anger, the unfaithfulness, the deceit, eventually takes its toll in some way on a relationship. But the prophet said that even though everything is falling apart, God was going to come and pour out his spirit and repair all of the decay, the decay and all of the brokenness in the world. He would come and the repair, the chaos would turn to order. Wounds would be healed and wrongs would be corrected. And so now you see what's going on here. The disciples are expecting that Jesus, when he pours out his spirit, that all of those things are going to happen. And what the disciples didn't understand, because they couldn't, is that the, the repair comes in two phases. The first phase of the repair is when Jesus comes, dies, is resurrected, and pours out his spirit. That's phase one of the repair. But there's a second phase, and that is when Jesus returns to earth. And in that phase, Jesus will bring down the new heavens and the new earth, and all the decay will be wiped away finally and completely once and for all. And that is what we see in Romans 8 when Paul talks about the first fruits of the Spirit. Right now we have the Holy Spirit, but it is a down payment. It is a deposit for the future harvest that is coming. There is a great renewal coming, and you and I have been given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to begin that renewal. But here is the thing. This idea and this concept of the Spirit is often utterly foreign for most of us. Because for most of us, the purpose of the coming of the Spirit is to transport us away in time and space into some ecstatic state of worship somewhere. No. The Spirit comes to begin the renewal comes to begin what God and Jesus will complete when he turn, returns again in the future. And my question is, do you believe this? You believe this, and you will have hope when all your dreams seem like they've been dashed to pieces. Thirdly and finally, 
if we're going to have hope in the midst of shattered dreams, we must trust God, we must anticipate the future and pray expectantly. Look lastly at trust God. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. So they're all together praying, and then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, a mighty rushing wind comes, and tongues of fire appear. When we see wind and fire in the Bible, it's always God. It's not a manifestation of God. This is God. Remember, remember Exodus 19? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and the whole mountain is engulfed in fire. But we can't miss the significance. Look at the passage. Now the fire has shown up on each and every person. It's over each and every person's head in the room. This is huge. Because it's saying that the same spirit, the same God that led the people in the wilderness now resides in each and every believing heart. Then look at verse 4. When these men and women get the Spirit, they start to talk. What do they talk about? They start to talk about what the Spirit has shown them. They don't talk about healing. They don't talk about this personal sense of well-being or some peaceful, easy feeling. Look at verse 11. What do they talk about? They start to talk about the wonders of God. Isn't it interesting that in John chapter 16, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, you know what he says? When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you in all truth, and he will glorify me. Here's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You hear a lot about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Here's what it means. To be filled with the Spirit means that you draw attention to Jesus. You draw attention to Him, not yourselves. And that's what Luke is saying. When someone is filled with the Spirit, they declare the wonders of God. They declare the wonders of the Gospel. I don't know about you, but this event to me is absolutely astounding. Think about this. Here the disciples are in this room praying. They don't know what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, God shows up. The wind starts to blow without expectation. Okay? And then they start to speak in these languages that they don't know, that they've never learned, that they didn't grow up with. And there's all these people from all over the known world, and literally the whole world was represented. And they start speaking the languages that these people know. And they start telling them about Jesus. And then if you look at the rest of the story, go over to verse 41 of chapter 2. Look how many people were saved. 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. And here's the thing. Think about this. After Pentecost, where did these people go? 
They went home. They went back all over the world. Okay, they're Christians now, and they go back to their homes to places all over the globe, the known world. Do you see what God has done here? In one event, God has spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth. In one moment. But normally when we talk about this passage, or most Christians talk about this passage, what do we focus on? Tongues. Should we speak in tongues? How do we speak in tongues? How do I know if I'm supposed to speak in tongues? What is it like? That's not the point that Luke is making. No. Luke is saying, look. Look at your God. Look at what he has done. And he did it the thing that no one expected. When their hopes were dashed, they devoted themselves to prayer. The Holy Spirit was poured out and the gospel went to the entire world. Unimaginable. Unbelievable. And my question is, do you live with this kind of expectation? Is this your God? Is your God this big? Do you expect God to do the unimaginable in your life and in the world? You see, when our dreams have been crushed, we need to trust God. Why? Well, because he's good. And he's working out his plan in the world. Sure, we might not know what he's up to. And we might not always like it or think we have it figured out. But God is working out his purposes in the world. And he wants to work out his purposes in your life. And who knows? <laughs> he might just do the unimaginable. Just like he did this day in the lives of the disciples. So how do we hope again when our dreams have been dashed to pieces? Well, we pray expectedly. We anticipate the future. And we trust God. Let's pray.